Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Season 6 of Truth and Justice is drawing to a close. We launched into the investigation of Jim Melgar's murder on July 29th of last year. Nearly a year later, we've gone about as far as we can go to find the truth. Any further investigation aired publicly could risk the validity and credibility of any results that are discovered. As things stand, I personally believe with 100% surety that Sandy Melgar did not kill her husband. I found no motive whatsoever. Jim Clemente's profile indicates that Jim was killed by a group of young home invaders, and there is zero forensic evidence linking Sandy to the murder. That being said, we've spent the last couple of months chasing down leads. John the renter, his girlfriend Claudia, and neighbor boy Chad have all been addressed. And while circumstantially none of them can be ruled out, I don't see John, Claudia, or Chad as being strong suspects in Jim's murder. But the closer I look into the 2009 home invasion and the Kingwood home invasion, the more similarities I'm seeing with the Melgar home invasion. At this point, I cannot rule out Cinead, Oscar and Company as viable suspects. Before this season draws to a close, we have a few more potential suspects that need to be addressed. Liz's ex-husband, the cleaning lady, and Jim's brother. Today, we're going to tie up these loose ends. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment... This is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's begin with the Melgar's housekeeper. Months ago, the cleaning lady peeked onto our radar. She was supposed to clean the Melgar's house on the weekend that Jim was murdered, and she never showed up. Suspicions grew when we found out that years before, her daughter had allegedly stolen some items as she helped her mother clean. Then we found out someone had apparently tipped off the home invaders in the 2009 home invasion where Oscar Garcia was arrested. All of this added together warrants a closer look at the Melgar's maid.
With the help of Liz and Sandy, I've been able to get some clarification on the housekeeper. As it turns out, the housekeeper that didn't show up on the weekend Jim was killed wasn't the same housekeeper that had the daughter with the sticky fingers. That cleaning lady had worked for the Melgars for years. She came about twice a month, but she had moved away several weeks before the murder. At the time of the attack, Jim and Sandy were in the market for a new housekeeper. In the interim, they were paying a friend to come over and help Sandy when needed. It was this friend that didn't show up that weekend. Jim had actually reached out to the friend earlier that week and asked her to do a thorough, deep clean of the house because he had a very special surprise to give to Sandy for their anniversary. Now, no one knows what that gift was. The only reason that we know about it is because the friend that was supposed to clean told Liz and Sandy about it after Jim was killed. She had contacted Jim and let him know that she couldn't clean the house that weekend because something had come up. And then recently, Liz was looking through her dad's phone and found that he had marked and saved the location of a jewelry store near their home. This leaves me wondering if Jim had bought a piece of jewelry for Sandy and it was taken by the home invaders. Regardless, I think that at this point we can cross the cleaning lady off of our suspect list. She had quit working for the Melgar several weeks before the murder and was living three hours away from Houston at the time. As we move on to our other two suspects, Liz's ex-husband and Jim's brother Irwin, I want you to understand what I'm doing in this investigative process. I want to know if any potential suspects had any kind of motive to attack Jim. And I want to know if they fit into the profile that Jim Clemente developed for us. Does their pre-offense and post-offense behavior connect with the behaviors that we see on the crime scene? Whoever killed Jim would have a history of violence. They would likely be experienced with strong-arm robberies, but not necessarily murder. When looking at pre-offense and post-offense behavior, I want to know if we're dealing with people that are not afraid of conflict. There's a big difference between a cat burglar and a home invader. The majority of thieves will steal when no one's looking. They avoid conflict and confrontation. They do this as a measure of lowering their risk exposure, and this behavior also speaks to the personality and character of the offender. There are people that have no reservations about putting a gun in someone's face and demanding money. And then there are people who will avoid that kind of confrontation by any means necessary. These are the questions that I wanted answered when I asked Liz about her ex-husband. Liz's ex was brought to the attention of Sean Carazal by Sandy's first attorney, Nick Owesi. We find three entries in the police report about Liz's ex. The first occurrence is in a supplement report on January 13th, about three weeks after the murder. Private investigator Juan Jorge, with Owesi Law Firm, stated an email would be sent with information on a possible suspect. I received information from the email that Jared Cox was a possible suspect because he was an ex-husband of Liz Melgar. Note, Jared Cox is the ex-husband of Elizabeth Melgar. Two weeks later, we find another mention of Jared. January 29, 2013. Attorney Nick Owesi emailed information with possible suspect information and information on his client Sandra Melgar during his interview with her. Jim Melgar's daughter, Elizabeth Rose, used to live in the house with her husband Jared Cox and both had a severe drug problem. 
They had friends with similar issues who frequented the home who had stolen items from the home. There's nothing in the report to indicate that Carazal ever spoke to Jared or even ran a background check on him. All we see in the report and in the string of emails is Liz trying to help find her father's killer, trying to do Carazal's job. The last mention of Jared in the police report states, quote, Based on attorney Nick Owesi's research, they believe two persons are worthy of further investigation, John the Renner and Jared Cox. Sandy's attorneys believe that John and Jared are, quote, worthy of further investigation, but apparently Carazal disagreed. He didn't interview John until the DA insisted that he do so a year and a half later, and he never interviewed Jared. Oh, and there's one more thing. Jared isn't actually Liz's ex-husband. Her ex's name is Zeb. In the police reports we see, and I've seen the emails, that your mom's attorney, Nicoesi, sent Carazal an email saying that your ex-husband, Jared Cox, had stolen from you before or stolen from the house before and that he should be considered a suspect. Uh, But the first thing that uh, you noted to me when we were going through this a long time ago is that Jared Cox is not your ex-husband. Right. He's my ex-husband's friend. Okay. And so did that just get confused in your emails to the lawyer and and kind of the game of telephone to the police? I I actually have no idea how that mistake was made. But yeah, I mean, somewhere along the line, somebody, you know, said that Jared was my ex-husband when he wasn't. Right. I know when we first started talking, one of your frustrations was the police never looked into your ex-husband. And then we finally got the police reports and found out that that's true. But in their defense, I'll say that your mom's attorney told them a different person was your ex-husband. So they never had any knowledge of your actual ex-husband. Well, either way, they'd never, they never looked into my real ex-husband or the one they just thought was my ex-husband. Exactly. And so what we see in the reports are that uh, they received these emails and then they never followed up on it. Uh, but let's go ahead and start with Jared because both of the names were mentioned. Uh, you said, you know, Jared was a friend of your ex-husband's and uh, there was there was an incident or incidents where he had stolen things from the house before. Right. Can you talk about those? Right. So the most notice- notable one would be I had a electric Fender Stratocaster and he walked off with that at one point and pawned it for drug money. Now, when when he took that, was there anyone home? How did he how did he walk off with it? That's a good question, because, you know, the times that he had been over, somebody was home. He was never there alone. And there was no way that he could have gone in without someone being there. But there was definitely no confrontation or anything with him taking it. Somehow he had snuck it out of the house. Right. Right. And then you eventually confirmed that he had it and got it back, right? Right. I had to tell him that the neighbor's surveillance camera across the street had captured him taking it. And that's that was enough to get him to bring it back. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What kind of guy was Jared? I know because you were he was Zeb's friend, but he was also your friend, right? Well, I mean, I know he was a drug addict and, and everyone's aware you were at the time, too. And so was your ex-husband. Not in 2012, but before that. Right, right. Years before. I guess tell me about Jared. Did, do you see him or did you ever see him? as someone that you think might be capable of this kind of violence? So Jared and my ex-husband and I, we were all raised as Jehovah's Witnesses, which is how we all know each other. And so once we all left, we continued to keep in touch. So I did know him outside of my ex-husband and, you know, also during my marriage to him. But, the entire thing basically just involved around drugs. And, you know, I want to say that I don't think he could do something like that. But when hard drugs are involved, you know, people become unpredictable. Did, do you, did you ever know him to be involved or connected to, you know, a group or him himself that were, were home invasions or burglaries were something that they did? Well, we did have another friend of ours whose house was burgled and a bunch of really expensive instruments were taken. And, you know, the word on the street was that Jared was behind it, but, you know, there was nothing more than hearsay to link him to the crime. And was there anyone at home during that one or was the house broken into and no one was there? It was broken into in the middle of the day when no one was home. Gotcha. And then um, with your actual ex-husband, Zeb, he there were some incidents where either he or a friend, did, did he ever steal anything from your parents or was was that the friends that had done that? Um, so medications were taken from my mom's room, which were, you know, the phenobarbital and the pain medication. So I don't know if if Zeb took those or if his friend that was there at the time took them, but I wouldn't doubt that he took the medication to abuse it, but I don't know if he actually stole it or if his friend stole it. So in, in that, that situation, it was either him or friends or whoever. Was that another instance where was he in the house alone uh, and his friends or were, were you there or how did, how did that come about when the, when the drugs were stolen? So his friend had come over and, and he had stayed the night and I know my parents weren't home the next day for whatever reason, and they would hang out in the living room or in the kitchen, and I would be in the room. So, I mean, at any point, they could have taken it. I don't know when they took it, because I don't think they would have told me about it, because they knew I would not have been happy. But it was definitely at some point while they had stayed in the house overnight. And again, with that instance, there was no no physical violence, no confrontation. Something was just kind of lifted from the house, either him or his friends or whoever. Right. And, and so with Zeb and, and all of your friends circle for that matter, uh, because that instance there, that caused some conflict between you and your parents at that point. Right. Yeah. That was when the conflict started. And that's when, 
things got tense between my dad and Zeb. Okay. What was his relationship like with your parents? You know, he was, he really loved my mom. He felt close to her because, you know, she was one of those people who was just loving and nurturing and made everyone feel welcome. But um, my dad, on the other hand, was not happy that this guy is staying in his house. He's not paying rent. He can't hold down a job. And now things are starting to disappear from the house. Right. And is that where some of the conflict between you and your dad kind of derived from? Yes, definitely. Okay. And about what year was that? That was probably 2009. So about three years before your dad's murder. Right. Okay. And then you and Zeb, uh, you guys split up shortly thereafter, right? I know you said you were divorced in September of 2010. Well, we split up much earlier than that, probably around the beginning of um, 2009, actually. So that must have been 2008, like the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. Did Zeb continue any kind of relationship with your parents after you guys split up in 2009? Um, no, he. Um, he did come over one time and he smashed my phone. He got really angry with me. I can't even remember why. And my dad basically just told him to get out and never come back. He was not allowed at the house anymore. He wasn't welcome there. And Zeb just yelled a huge fuck you and got in his car and left. And about what time frame was that? This is probably August 2009. So, you know, part of what I'm looking at and what I'm evaluating all of these people as potential suspects are you were looking at you know how they fit into a profile they fit into the the crime itself pre-offense behavior post-offense behavior um so let's talk a little bit about pre-offense behavior uh with Zeb and his friends did you ever know any of them to commit any violent crimes and when i say violent crimes you know that 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 could be any range of things from from murder to assault but even even a home invasion where someone's not injured or killed, I consider to be a violent crime, you know, because what I'm looking for are, are these people who are because oftentimes we see with drug dealers uh, or drug addicts, excuse me, that, you know, they'll do whatever they have to do to get their next fix. They'll they'll rob, steal, steal from their loved ones, do whatever they have to do. But it's a different line when someone is willing to do that with conflict and confrontation, uh, meaning so are they sneaking into houses when people aren't home? Are they stealing things from their friends or are they, you know, holding a gun to someone and robbing them? Uh, there's nothing that I have enough evidence, you know, to definitively say yes or no. So nothing that you know of when you were physically with them. I mean, because there was a number of years you were in that crowd, right? Right. And during that time, did they ever talk about or, or commit any crimes where they, you know, broke into someone's house or that someone, you know, or mugged somebody at gunpoint or held a knife to somebody or anything like that? No, not like that. Okay. Um, what about, I know you probably have less, well, probably maybe not any idea of post-defense behavior, but as you know, I've done some background checks and I've never seen any, any arrests for anything like this. Are you aware of, of Zeb or any of the other people you used to hang out with being involved in any kind of, of violent crimes? No. I don't see Zeb or Jared as being viable suspects in Jim's murder. While there was some conflict there, and they do have a history of theft, and even theft from the Melgars, Zeb hadn't seen Jim or Sandy for three years at the time of the murder. 
It's also hard to imagine a scenario where three years later, either of them would see the Melgars as potential targets. And aside from that, both Zeb and Jared were passive thieves. Neither of them has any history of violence whatsoever, even when you consider the incident where Zeb broke Liz's phone. It's a great example of what we see when he gets angry and loses his cool. He took his frustrations out on an inanimate object and not a human. And when Jim kicked him out of the house, Zeb's final act of aggression was a big F.U. over his shoulder as he was walking away. This is not the type of person who is likely to break into an occupied home and physically assault the residents. Barring some type of DNA match or other forensic evidence, in my opinion at this point, Zeb and Jared can be ruled out as suspects. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Throughout Sean Carazal's entire investigation, he wasn't able to find a single person who appeared to have any motive or even legitimate conflict with Jim Melgar. He promised Sandy during her interrogation that he was going to speak with everyone that she and Jim were related to. As we know, that never happened. And it's too bad that he never followed up. Because through my investigation, I've only came across one person who had beef with Jim. Just one. His brother... Irwin. Jim and Irwin always had a bit of a strained relationship. They basically cut off communications completely in 2008 when Irwin sent Jim a scathing email in response to being questioned about one of their mother's rental properties. Irwin was my dad's middle brother. He was the brother in the middle, his older brother, but the middle one. It went Herman. Erwin, and then my dad was the youngest by like, I think it was eight years. Erwin and my dad, you know, they used to hang out quite a bit. They would go over to each other's houses and just visit for a little while. But after my parents had moved to this house, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but my dad and Erwin, they just stopped. They stopped talking. And after my dad died, I went into his email just to see if I could find anything in there that might be useful. And I found an old email between my dad and Erwin where Erwin had gotten really upset with my dad because my dad had asked him about a rental property that was my grandmother's, but Erwin was helping her take care of it. And I guess Erwin felt like my dad was asking him questions because he wasn't confident in Erwin's abilities to take care of the property. You know, he basically just told my dad that He wasn't a child and blamed him for a difficult childhood, um, amongst other things. I don't really remember exactly what he said. And my dad's reply was just, you know, I'm sorry that you feel that way. It wasn't my intention to make you feel belittled or, you know, unappreciated. But that wasn't what I was trying to do. And, you know, if you don't want me to talk to you anymore, then that's fine. We don't have to talk. And that was it. Erwin came over a couple of times 
maybe it was just once. I mean, I remember one time, but he could have been there after. But it was pretty soon after we moved in that he came over. And then I never saw him again after that. The email exchange and breakdown in Jim and Irwin's relationship occurred four years before Jim was killed. For those four years, the two brothers basically had no relationship. But in November of 2012, a month before the murder, Jim sent off an email to his mother's lawyer because she wanted to make some changes to her will. So originally, the will stated that everything my grandmother owned would be split three ways. But after my grandmother got really sick and nearly died uh, during a trip to Guatemala, my grandmother decided to start making some changes. And my dad was the one that, you know, would take her to her doctor's appointments, take her grocery shopping, pay her bills, do, do everything that she needed done. So she wanted to give him more than his brothers who were not as involved. Everybody was still getting a property, I think a property and a half, something like that. And I think they were also getting some money from, you know, her accounts. But my dad was going to get the property that was the most valuable. And I think that that really bothered Erwin. And I know that he was really upset. He felt that, you know, he was given the short end of the stick as a child. And I think he had some resentment towards his parents for the way that that he grew up. The whole discussion of this will came up a while back because normally your grandmother, I can tell from the emails that were sent a month before the murder that your grandmother obviously had a will. The, your, your dad's emails to the attorney were asking him to make changes to the existing will. Uh, and you had mentioned to me before that the wills were usually kept in the safe in the closet, but no one was ever able to locate that will after your dad died. Right. We, we never found my grandmother's will. But my grandfather's will was found in some of the crime scene photos. Right. And that was actually on the ground in the closet next to your dad's body. Correct. Okay. And it was the will ever, your grandmother's will ever recovered? No. It was never recovered. And after she passed away, I believe my uncle Irwin told my uncle Herman that there was no will. Your grandma has since passed, right? Right. She passed shortly before trial. Okay. And then, so now with no will anywhere, uh, who handled how things got divided up? Well, Erwin was in charge of, you know, helping her with her finances and, you know, doing everything my dad had done previously. And, but slowly things started moving over into his name. He talked to my grandmother and he convinced her to buy this house. That was this large five bedroom house in Houston uh, so that they could all live together and they could take care of her. And they being him, his wife, his ex-wife, his daughter, and his son. And shortly after they purchased the house, my grandmother was, I don't know if I can use the words kicked out, but she was definitely put in an environment that she was uncomfortable in. And so she looked for other places to live. So when she passed away... She actually passed away with no money and living at a friend's house. The interesting thing about the situation with the will is that while it would seem to demonstrate some kind of motive on Irwin's part, it also cuts the other way in regards to Sandy. 
As we've discussed previously, Jim had close to $500,000 in life insurance, a policy that never paid out to Sandy because she was suspected in his murder. Some have said that the 500 k could be sufficient enough motive for Sandy to murder her husband of 32 years. But the fact is that Jim's death balanced out that $500,000. The more expensive property that was going to be left to Jim by his mother in the revised will was valued at about a half a million dollars. So upon Jim's death, Sandy, had she not been a suspect, would have received the $500,000 life insurance payout, but she would have lost the $500,000 property that would have gone to Jim upon his mother's death, leaving her with a net gain of zero. At Jim's funeral, several people have reported to me that Irwin made an emotional scene. Some of the family members thought that his cries out to his deceased brother sounded an awful lot like a confession. So my dad's funeral was supposed to just be a short sermon, and that was it. Nobody was going to say anything or do any readings or anything like that. But after the sermon had ended, my uncle kind of ran up on stage, and he began talking to the microphone, saying how sorry he was, how he had always been jealous of my dad, how my dad had always been better at everything than my uncle but that at least he was okay because he was in the spirit world now. And then he was sort of escorted off stage. But that definitely struck everybody as very odd. You know, I kind of took it as, you know, people act strangely when they're emotional or upset. So it, it was hard for me to say one way or another. But a lot of people did feel that that was more of a confession than just a grieving brother. So I hate to say, you know, that we were looking at him suspiciously at that point, but a lot of people just didn't know how to take that. And you can't say how somebody's feeling, especially when they're feeling something so intensely, when you've lost somebody so unexpectedly. People act out in different ways, and there is no right or wrong way. While Irwin did have some conflict with Jim... To me, his emotional display at the funeral sounds like regret. Regret that he had thrown away the opportunity to have a loving relationship with his brother. And then it was too late. People tend to look back on their actions in a different way when they lose someone who's close to them. Arguments that seemed so important at the time now seem completely insignificant. And I think that that's what everyone was seeing when Irwin took the stage at Jim's funeral. Unless there is forensic evidence that conclusively connects Irwin to Jim's murder, I believe that he also can be ruled out as a suspect. With the cleaning lady, Zeb, Jared, and Irwin crossed off of our list, We've reached the conclusion of the investigation that can be spoken about publicly on the podcast. The work will still continue, and as always, we'll be producing more episodes as new information comes to light. But for now, it's time to conclude Season 6 and deliver the season finale and introduce you to our Season 7 case next week on Truth and Justice.
Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. Keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.